Hey everyone, all eyes on the Fed. What a crazy week, uh, but that's not what we're here for. We're here for actually our amazing guests. Um, let's work in reverse order and do an introduction. So Howard, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? I'm calling in from London, England, and uh, talking about the newly published book, Launchpad Republic, which I wrote with uh, co-author John Landry, came out last month, and excited to talk with you about it, and thanks for having me. Woohoo! we are super excited. Hey, Byron, what are you doing? What are you up to? Where are we calling in from again? I'm calling in from Austin, Texas, and I, too, have a new book out. <clears throat> it's called Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think, How Humans Learn to See the Future. <laughs> that was very cool. So we'll get deeper with each of our guests in a bit, but back to you, Al. All right. Three, two, one. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send your questions to Ray, myself, our distinguished guests using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in the World of Digital Giants. <laughs> Ray is a regular television business technology news contributor. You can see him every week on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC, and Wall Street Journal. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Bala Afshar, the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or heading events at Salesforce like Dreamforce next week, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets as well, such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But as we say to our guests every week and to our amazing audience, it's not about us. It's about who we have next and who do we have to kick it off, Bala. One of our favorite guests is back. So buckle up, take your popcorn out. This is going to be amazing. Byron Reese, CEO of JJ Kent and author of his fourth book just came out, uh, Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think. <laughs> Brian is an Austin-based entrepreneur with a quarter century of experience building and running technology companies. He's recognized authority on AI. He's had the most in-depth conversations with the foremost authorities in the space of AI and holds a number of technology patents. In addition, he's a futurist with a strong conviction that technology will help bring about a new golden age 
of humanity. Byron gives talks around the world about how technology is changing work, education, and culture. He's author of four books, as I mentioned, Infinite Progress, Wasted, The Fourth Age, and his most recent, Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think, which was described by New York Times as entertaining and engaging. Bloomberg Business credits Byron with having quietly pioneered a new breed of media company. His work has been featured in every major news outlet you can imagine, New York Times, Washington Post, Entrepreneur Magazine, USA Today, NPR, and more. He's an excellent follow on Twitter at Byron Reese, obviously an early adopter. He got his name, B-Y-R-O-N-R-E-E-S-E. Welcome back, Byron, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much for having me here. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. We are so excited to have you here. We're going to kick off by asking you, like, what in the heck is this book about? Does it get back to the human mind? Like, what is this? Where are you going with this thing? I read this title and I was like, what the heck? We're going deep on something, but I'm not sure what. And then I read the book and I was like, wow. So give the audience some idea of what we're talking about. Um, I, I wrote the book uh, to answer a simple question, which is, how is it that people are different than animals? Because you like to say, well, we're just another animal, but when you look around the world, it, it sure doesn't look like that, does it? I mean, like, we live lives very different than any any other animal. I mean, we almost look like aliens. And I really <laughs> wanted to understand that. I wanted to understand what was so different about us. Yeah, and it's amazing, right? When we think about where that goes, I mean, I mean, you you took a look at this from multiple angles, and, and those multiple angles, like, actually, I mean, you start by asking questions about, like, why are we different? So... Yeah. How are we different? Like what, what separates us from every other animal or a planet? You know, the, 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 the cool way to start that off is to talk actually about a creature called Homo erectus who lived for 1.6 million years, they, uh, 80,000 generations. And erectus had this tool, one tool called an Acheulean hand axe. It looked like a big arrowhead. That's the one tool. And it never changed over 80,000 generations of, uh, of them using it. And the reason that's significant is it really should have changed. Even if every erectus just was copying their parents, it would have just drifted. But what happens is we find these things on three continents, and they're all just alike. If I were to show you two were made a million years apart and said, which is older, you probably would you'd have to guess. And, why, and you're like, well, what does that mean? What it, what it suggests to me is that erectus was not making a piece of technology. In fact, erectus didn't even know what it was doing. It was making a genetic object the way that um, beavers will build the same dam or birds will build a certain nest, the same nest that their parents and grandparents, they don't learn it like it's coded in them. And so you think about that. They went 80,000 generations without anybody looking at that thing and saying, you know, it'd be a little better if they didn't do any of that. And then there's us. And somehow we got from Kitty Hawk to the moon in three generations. And, and, and when you look at those things side by side, you say, aha. Something, you know, we're not like erectus. We're something very different. And that sort of was my launching off point. And that took me to, um, to cave art, which I'm just fascinated by. Because, you know, when I think about these caves like at Chauvet and these, these um, you, and, you, and you would say, and they're beautiful. They're just beautiful caves with these beautiful artwork. And, and then you say, well, and that's like the oldest stuff we have. And then you say, well, wait a minute. Weren't there like stick figures first and then later they put up, you know, like a triangle on one of them for a dress and eventually it became beautiful cave art, but that's not what happened. We had nothing and then nothing, 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 nothing. And then it explodes with, with 
Chauvet and these other caves in Southeast Asia and Australia, kind of all at the same time. That's a big mystery. But but the cool thing to think about is you had none of that. And then you had this beautiful stuff. And it wasn't just that it was beautiful, but there was technology uh, there because they had to build scaffolding to reach the high places. They were mixing the paint with uh, animal fat so it stuck better. They were mixing it with talc to extend it. And then when they needed black, they could have just used charcoal, right? It's all over the place, but that wasn't black enough. They used a mineral that they had to heat to 1,600 degrees to get it to turn black. And the closest source of it's 140 miles from the Chauvet Cave. And then when you excavate these caves, you find musical instruments. Our very first ones at the exact same moment that we get that art. And then you find representative art, art uh, that, you know, a, a statue of something. And then you say, okay, well, wait a minute. Something's going on here. We're not a rectus with this one arrowhead. We're something. Something happened to us. And I'm almost to what it was. And I don't think I'm alone in this part. It was some. It goes by a lot of names, but something happened to us, like a radioactive spider kind of biting us. I mean, something big and dramatic happened, and we got language. And the cool thing about language is not, uh, it's not that we use it to communicate. That came a lot later. What the the real purpose of language is? It's the stuff that thought is made out of, and we think in language. And that's not just speculation. There's a Wonderful passage in the book from Helen Keller. He talks about what her mental life was like before her teacher came. And she said she didn't even realize she was a thing that was different than the universe. She didn't realize she had a self. She didn't really have any concept of time or anything like that. And then with the language and she can think. And then she said, and in that moment, I became conscious. And I think that's what happened to us. I think one day, the spider bit us, happened to one person, one time, 70,000 years ago. And, and that gave them such an advantage that they quickly just took over the world. Can you can you talk to us? Uh, you referenced technology a couple of times, but can you talk? So it's a two part question. One is, how do you go from engaging with the foremost experts on AI? How do you go from talking about machine learning and computer visioning and neural networks and chatbots and natural language processing and all the different divisions within this umbrella we call AI to wanting to write about why humans are different than animals. How, what does that process look like? And then why are we as, as human beings, why do we, our lives are full of technologies? None of us are more than probably uh, two, three meters, feet, feet from this device 24 hours a day, at least Ray and I. I'm not sure about you. You, you, leave, you live a more balanced life. <laughs> so uh, as compared to, let's say, a dolphin who we all believed to be very smart, but they're not around technology. So how did you go from AI domain expertise to writing this book? Like what clicked? And then, and then, and then why are we so close to technology as compared to other living animals? Uh, wonderful. Um, you know, what are, people ask me what futurists are. And, and futurists, I think, are people who try to figure out why the future happens the way it does. Why does this happen and not that? And the only place you can get any insight on that is in the past because that's the only place you can answer the question well how did we get here today and so i think futurists naturally spend a whole lot of time in the past trying to figure out how we got to where we where we were but you tend to go way past yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not like the last you know what ai was in the 1956 57 conference the first time right. i think the word was mentioned so i can understand studying 70 years you're going 
I mean, Whoa. it's amazing how deep you go to, to find the critical the thinking water. behind well, this. It's amazing. Let's do it this way. So, for some number of billions of years, we only life on this planet only had one place to write anything down. Only one place to write anything down, and that's our DNA. Uh, and and it's pretty reliable, but it takes a long time to add something to that. Um, and then that minute that we got speech, well, what that did is that expanded our genome. It wasn't just what was in our, our cells, but it's then what's in our head. And that becomes part of our genome. And I just find that to be a fascinating notion because all of a sudden I could say, uh, Ivala, don't eat the purple berries. They'll make you sick. And that's it. You know it. And that mutation can spread instantly. And that is what our genome became. And, and that's what kind of we became. But what happened is, even though we have all this mental power, our bodies only run on about 100 watts of power. That's all we have. That's it. And we wouldn't have lasted very long except we learned this trick called technology where we could amplify what it is that uh, we're able to do. And, and that's why instead of 100 watts of power, just yourself, you know, you're probably consuming 10,000 watts of power in this moment. Um, and that, that's why we're surrounded by it, because that's what makes, that's what takes our mental abilities and, and kind of amplifies them. But I actually think it, it's, it tells us a different story, which is um, there was a guy named uh, Leonard Reed a long time ago who wrote in the 50s, I think, who wrote an essay called I Pencil. And he said, nobody knows how to make a pencil. There's not a person on the earth that can make a pencil. And that, uh, nobody knows how to like mine the ore and make it into steel and crimp it into the, onto the ferrule and all that stuff. And yet pencils get made. And that's because, that's because um, we all, so nobody knows how to make one. Then you say, well, who's making the pencils? And that's the superorganism I call Agora. That's this, this creature that emerges from our collective effort. And that thing knows how to make pencils. That thing knows how to make smartphones. Like, no, there's not a person in the world who can make a smartphone. Smartphone requires 60 elements. Your body only requires like 30. And there's not, and then you say, well, why do they get made? And it's because, you know, we learned how to, how to, we, we specialized, of course, to an extreme degree. We only each know how to do one little thing. And then uh, we became greater than some of our parts. And I find all of that fascinating. Like, how did we get here? Like, how, why don't um, dolphins have the internet or telegraphs or mail? Why don't they even have mail? You know, beavers make these dams and they don't know what they're doing. Like, if you put a recording of running water in a field and a beaver walks by, it's going to build a dam around it. Like, <laughs> what it, does. it doesn't know. And here we are. We have all this agency. And, and okay, so you need to, I'd like, uh, please explain Agora. And is Agora uh, ultimately responsible for the spidey bite, spider bite we need to get to general AI? And when will that happen? <laughs> so Agora is a Greek word that comes, uh, it's like the old marketplace in ancient Greece. And um, it wasn't just a marketplace. The government was there and the doctors were there. And I mean, it was noisy and hot and 
that was just it. That was the action. That was like and center of the universe. So when I was trying to think of something that evoked what happened with with people, um, I liked it. I liked it a lot. So I guess you have to start with the idea of of a superorganism. So all of your cells are alive, right? Like they each live. If I pull you apart a cell at a time and I drop those things in Petri dishes, they could live. But when I was done pulling them apart a cell at a time, you wouldn't be there anymore. And, and it's like, well, what Petri dish are you in? Well, you're not in any Petri dish. You just vanished. And, and then I had to say, well, were you ever even there? And what were you? And so you're what is known as a superorganism. A lot of other organisms come together and through their interaction and communication, they, um, they form a new creature that has different capabilities. So none of your cells has a sense of humor, but you do. And where did that come from? So I, I think all the way back to uh, Paleolithic time. So imagine you're, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're five people and you go to take down a mammoth. And you all run over there to try to take down the mammoth. And the mammoth is just annoyed by you and it just gores a couple of you and stomps on a couple and, and it's all over. Now imagine we have speech now. We have speech. And, I, and we get together and we say, okay, okay, here's the plan. I want you to climb this tree and then you to go at the mammoth with spears and I'm going to be in the front doing this and okay, let's go. And then you're kind of yelling at each other. Oh no, he's moved. Now, what is the mammoth fighting at that point? The mammoth is fighting a very strange creature. It has 10 arms, 10 legs, <laughs> but only one mind. Hmm. And that's a frightening thing. That's why the mammoth is like, what? And, and so that's where Agora was born. It, to the extent you say, okay, I see how they have one mind and that mind emerged and that mammoth killing machine relies on these parts. Okay. And so that's the beginning of that superorganism. But now, now I think it's, it's, it's everybody. It's everybody. Byron, I think that awakening is, is really powerful, right? The way you set the stage on the awakening. Mm-hmm. But I think something even more interesting that I, I, I would say that you kind of understated uh, in your brilliant mind is what Lawrence Reed was really talking about, right? It's, it's really about um, when we actually have an experience where, I don't know, socialists, interventionists, collectivists, statists, and we have people that believe that they can rearrange society for a common good, they basically crush they crush that innovation and they crush where humanity goes. And that's the beauty of what you're talking about in Agora. Is, is that what you meant? Right? Well, absolutely. That's a really interesting thing. You think about bees and a beehive. So that, a beehive is a super organism. For instance, bees can't regulate their body temperature. They're cold-blooded creatures. Uh, the hive regulates its temperature. It holds it at 97 degrees. So it's a different creature than, than the bees uh, themselves, and and our cities are the equivalent of that hive for us. And our, our cities encode all this information. Like every time we make a desire path or we knock out a wall, like we start encoding all this information. And you're entirely right. If you went in and said, "I shall design the perfect city," and it no one can change anything, that city would not have been built symbiotically with its usage. It would not have come together as mm. like this. This one, uh, this one creature would not have come together. I, I'll tell you, really, the genesis of this book is really funny because 
I um, I was a Boy Scout. And when you go to Boy Scout camp, you, know, you sign up for these merit badge classes, right? Um, and they're all about woodcraft and things like that. But I was a nerd. And one time- I We're to, all nerds. I know. One time I went- You're to a super camp. nerd. And I say that with affection. <laughs> no, one time I went to Boy Scout camp though, and I saw they had a new, a new merit badge that they offered. It was bookkeeping. And I was like, I will take that. And so I, I show up and there's six other Boy Scouts. We're the only seven Boy Scouts who thought it would be great to spend summer learning accounting. And we get there and we are told it was a typo that we've actually all signed up for beekeeping. What? Oh. <laughs> That's a true story. That's and, a uh, big typo. It, it was. It was. And so I fell in love with it. And when I came home, I ordered uh, I ordered an MPB hive from the Sears catalog. Oh my god! And guess where I got my bees? <laughs> in the Sears catalog. I ordered right. twenty thousand bees, and they come in this box, and you're <laughs> and, and you got it there. And so I grew up watching these bees, and I, and I would hear all this lore about how uh, when, according to beekeepers, if somebody if the beekeeper dies, somebody's got to go out there and tell the bees the beekeeper's dead. Because otherwise, they're just going to be like, I don't know what's going on, and they're going to be, um, and that's the notion of the super organism. I don't know if that's true. If I don't know if the hive takes on consciousness or self awareness or anything, but it becomes its own creature. It becomes a thing that's different than the parts, just like you're different than your parts. But before we get the probability theory, I, I want to talk about. Um, you said the greatest invention in history was paper. Why paper? We had speech. You explained speech and how we got you gotta, together. You got to put it somewhere. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Mobile. Here's the thing. I mean, I mean, what what, what made it so what made it so significant? Because uh, your I, other inventions are pretty huge. Like we, you stack on there. So. Okay, so you're with me that like when we uh, got speech and could write thoughts to our brain, that that became another like our DNA, a place we can store information, right? Yeah. And that's huge. But that pales, pales to what happened when we started writing things down. Now, everything that's written down, that is Agora's genome. That is our society's genome. Now, just like your genome, a bunch of it, most of it's junk DNA. Most of what's written down is junk. But our <laughs> DNA... Like those books we're writing, Bala. Is Byron reading stuff. my tweets? <laughs> I think he's reading my draft notes from my book. <laughs> that... Uh, that is us now. That we're we're one creature. We're one planetary wide creature. That with one set of knowledge, and we behave as like one organism. Um, and and if there's a one uncontacted tribe out there, they're not part of it. But the minute you meet them and you tell them about Santa Claus or anything, then they are. They're looped in. They're part of the that, that mind. There's nothing mystical about what I'm describing. I mean, any more than it's mystical about how you emerge from your cells. Like, pretty pretty amazing. But, but I'm not, it, this isn't some kind of a, a new agey kind of thing. It's me really trying to understand how simple parts like cells or people can come together and accomplish this. Really so you're saying paper expedited our dis sorry, Vala. Uh, you're saying paper expedited our dissemination of information, just like as you get into the next set of ages, right? That is exactly right. We, uh, we no longer had to have what we knew tattooed across our chest. It's right. 
Ray mentioned probability theory, so that's my main question. But do you consider Sir Tim Berners-Lee uh, and the, the inventor of the web as someone who contributed to one of the greatest inventions ever? Absolutely. That's part of this, us coming together to form this, this organism, Agora. So, Agora. So in the book, you, you, you break down the history of intelligent species into three acts. You talked about the first act, which mm -hmm. was ancient humans undergo an awakening, developing their cognitive ability to mentally time travel using language. So language was act one. Act two, in the 17th century, France, the mathematical framework known as probability theory is born, a science for seeking into the future that we use to build the modern world. Talk to us about this probability theory as the you know the key to the second act so when we got language and we got the knowledge of the future in the past uh we could imagine the future and that's what our stories were the story started as probably as uh, us imagining 30 45 seconds into the future i could do that i could do this but we're we're an ambitious lot and so very quickly we said you know it's great to be able to imagine the future but we want to we want to predict it we want to predict it. And to predict the future, you have to know why it happens the way it does. And this was this huge mental block. It's hard to believe that before 1654, uh, we didn't know how to, we didn't have math and we didn't have data. And and the whole idea of probability uh, what, what was conceptually beyond us. But then we learned something. I have a, a prop. I'll be quick with it. So when you say, why does the future happen? There were all these different theories, like it happens because it's destined to happen or fate or what have you. But nobody ever said it happens because of randomness. So maybe you've seen one of these. It's called a golfing board in the science museum. I'm about to flip it and all these BBs are going to start falling. And when they fall, they're going to they're going to hit a piece of plastic and they can with equal preference go to the left or the right. Is that a Gaussian distribution? What is whatever, That's what exactly what it is. And every time <laughs> now who's a nerd now? <laughs> He's still a super nerd. <laughs> so I can do that all day long. It's always going to be the same. And, That's amazing. And how, yeah. how, how is that possible that that is that is randomness that I'm yeah. I'm looking at right there. And yet there's order and predictability and randomness. And that was the mental thing we figured out that allowed us to create probability as a science. Wow. Wow. So this is like this is like the prequel to singularity that we're talking about here, right? Ooh. I mean, so so we we get all this stuff. Hey. Singularity. Here's the future, and no one explains how it happens, and now comes Byron, right? I mean, I mean, this is basically the prequel. Like, do you debate with AI experts uh, in terms of again the? the I'll, I'll go back to the question: When do you believe we're going to get to, or are we going to get to general AI? I don't believe in general AI. Okay. I mean, generally, breaking uh, news, breaking news here. No, but is, that, is, that, is that because you believe we are the we are the most amazing creatures ever created, no, and we no. can't replicate it? Even or? at zettabyte computing scale, even at uh, the the amount of incredible ingestion of data that's going that into right. these now, models. Now to be clear, I hosted a podcast and I asked a hundred different people that question. Yes, AI experts, and ninety-seven of them wouldn't have agreed with me. Only three would have. So I understand I'm in the extreme minority, but I think. All 100 would agree on this statement, which is we don't know how to make general intelligence. And our only reason to believe that we can is it's based on the notion that people are machines. And if people are, in fact, machines, then someday we'll build a mechanical brain or person and 
then it'll get better and better and better. But if people are not machines, and you don't have to go all like spiritual to, to assume that, mm. that there's something about people that you cannot reproduce in a fab, that isn't to me a crazy belief. I mean, think about it. We have these brains. We don't know how they work. We don't know where how we store these dots, and we certainly don't know how you retrieve them. And those give rise to your mind, which is creativity and all these things. We don't know how that works. And we're conscious. I can feel temperature, and all a thermometer can do, all a computer can do is measure temperature. I can feel warmth, and and we don't know how that is. And it, that's a really annoying problem because not only do we not Science doesn't mind us not knowing something. What science has problems with is we don't have any idea how same elements that make a rock make you, and, and somehow you're able to experience the world. Like, how can that be? Like, what, is that, what does that formula look like? And so we don't know any of that, and yet to say, oh, yeah, but we're going to make general intelligence. I just, I just don't have that much faith. Like, so Byron, you, know, Byron, Byron you can even project warmth. Think about that. Digitally. <laughs> this is amazing and fascinating. And I honestly believe like everyone who picks up this book is going to be completely blown out of their, their mind. minds are going to expand. Are we a vessel that a spirit just happens to be in at the moment? Or are we much more? Or why are we different than someone else? And we are definitely. And we didn't even get to act three. We got to get you back on the show. Well, uh, I'll tell you. And then the, the, this book that is 44 days away from being finished, according to this big number. It is just about Agora. About And it asks the question, is Agora just a metaphor, which is fine, or is Agora a system, like a car, and it can break? Or is Agora a thinking, living creature? So, Byron, this is my invite to you. Hopefully, at that point, you will not be writing another book, and you will be at CCE 2023 in person as one of our keynotes um, so that you'll be there live with us. So hold that date, October 23rd. Um, to the 27th, 6th, October 23rd, 26th, 2023. Hold that date and we will have you there. So we are here with Byron Reese, CEO of JJ Ken, author of Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think. And we're going to hear more about Agora in a bit. But follow him on Twitter at Byron Reese. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. That sir. was fun. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I, I Agora, wanna, we go. I, I just want to be a fly <laughs> on the wall to see his process. Uh, how did you even come up with the title? Like that just rocks that thing. I'm sure his publisher is like, Byron, you're, you're no, killing obvious, us here. Obvious and non-obvious based on what we heard yeah. last week. Okay, speaking of extraordinary authors, people are going to, this next segment will, again, expand your mind. Uh, we're going to be watching this show over the weekend, at least I am, so I can, you know, relearn all the wisdom nuggets that are being dropped. John Landry and Howard Walk are co-authors of Launchpad Republic which is a new book that just came out. John Lander is a business historian, writer, and a former editor at Harvard Business Review. He's adept at taking uh, a massive detail and distilling the story or key insights that leaders find useful. John's worked with executives, consultants, academics, and he's, uh, has incredible experience in a variety of countries and cultures, and we're going to learn in the next segment. Howard Walk is an experienced entrepreneur, company builder, investor. Howard is the co-president of the Cross uh, Country Group, a privately held firm consisting of startups and mature companies. Howard is a former senior fellow at Harvard uh, Kennedy School. Welcome, John and Howard, to uh, Disrupt TV. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. 
We are so Thank excited. You. This KSG HBR collab is amazing. No, just kidding. Inside <laughs> joke. <laughs> but hey, we are so excited to have you here. And you know, this is one of the most important topics. It's probably what makes uh, American entrepreneurism different and, and why we actually have an interesting edge. And I think it's something that should be taught in every single school at every single level. But let's start with the fundamental question. How can entrepreneurship be a form of rebellion? You know, we, we uh, again, thanks for having us. You know, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the act of entrepreneurship. And, and most of your viewers will, will, who are entrepreneurs will intuitively understand that being an entrepreneur is, is somewhat of a rebellious act. The whole David and Goliath nature of entrepreneurship is really an important part of what drives startups. And there is a very anti-authoritarian kind of take over the world aspect to entrepreneurship that's really important. And as we looked around, uh, while the entrepreneurial community understands that, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of other people don't. A lot of policymakers don't. A lot of a lot of general, uh, you know, interested professionals don't really understand it. And it's it's a war. We have a chapter, chapter two, called "Gorillas and Gorillas," and it's all about <laughs> the tension between startups, gorillas, who who scrape and claw and find their way into a market and challenge an established interest, and gorillas, which are the big, well-resourced companies that don't pay attention until it's too late uh, or, or unless they start to be, you know, it's, the smart ones now are starting to pay a lot more attention. But that dynamism, we think, uh, is at the root of what's made America so successful over 200 years. Uh, and it's, and, it, and it's, it's, it's something that needed to be more, better articulated and needs to be better appreciated, we think, as people think about entrepreneurship uh, going forward. John, talk yeah. to us about the ultimate rebe uh, rebellions in, in the startup world and how what, what does it mean to be a unicorn in, in, in terms of measuring uh, entrepreneurial success? Well, we, we start the book with Uber, which Uber. I like as sort of a classic example of the good and bad of entrepreneurship, which is uh, there was a real problem in the marketplace. Uh, taxi cabs yeah. were not convenient. Oh, they sucked. Uh, they were it was just a passing <laughs> You're too nice. You're too nice. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, this entrepreneur came along with a, a different idea about how to make it way better. Uh, but the problem is there were all these laws that basically protected taxi cabs pretty much in every city, uh, almost ever, all around the world. And uh, but Uber was so excited uh, at its technology that the founders basically said, let's just put it out there and see what happens. So he started off in San Francisco. And sure enough, the taxi cab said, hey, you can't do this. It's against the law. But people loved it so much and they hated taxi cabs so much, I guess, that they basically put all this pressure and cities all around the country started yep. changing the laws. And so now Uber could could. Uh, go everywhere. But if you are, think about it, if you are a, an established company, you don't want to be known as a lawbreaker. You know, it really was left to the entrepreneurs who were kind of rebellious, who said, I don't want to deal with terrible taxi cabs anymore. Uh, I don't have a lot to lose. I'm going to try this. I, you know, there's kind of an emotional uh, component, which is why we like it as a rebellion. And so uh, entrepreneurs have to break things in effect, and they have to be really believe in what they do. And they, uh, if all you want to do is make things a little better, well, big companies are great at that. You know, they're really good at incremental improvement. But in order to get big advances, we really need entrepreneurs. So it's never about better sameness. It's about rewriting and reinventing and just creating new experiences that are 
that are not just incrementally better than what we're used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so yes. why does that make us the beacon of entrepreneurship? Like, what are we doing different? Is it because our, our people are less complacent? Is it because we have more immigrants? Like, I mean, what are the factors? What are the values that allow us to go break rules? I mean, every other country, I mean, let's let's take COVID. And I'm not going to politicize it, right? Take COVID. Everybody else was compliant. Like, oh, government says you need to do this. And everyone's like, okay. And we're like, no, we're going to fight you. We're going to do everything on our own. We're going to, like, we were so different compared to the rest of the world. Can you imagine someone in China? right now it's like oh my god those people they're out there what are they doing those americans they're crazy i mean it's just what what makes us so different yeah well i mean that that's a great example where america brought to bear both the the values of big companies which could get innovation out into the market quickly and efficiently and at scale and you know the modernas of the world the startups the, the, using new technologies and new platforms to come up with create creative ideas that wasn't part of the established Mm -hmm. uh, protocols for thinking about innovation. And the two were very symbiotic. They work well together and we really leverage both. Um, do they, feed, I think that's, do they that's, feed on each other? The fact that we know we can go do this and the fact that we're not afraid. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also the, I think the political economy is really important. We talk a lot about this a lot in the book, uh, that in a lot of other countries to go back to the Uber example, uh, there is a sort of a, an implicit favoritism toward, producers, toward established mm. communities, uh, towards stability. And uh, we have this attitude, well, okay, those are nice. We, we certainly want to have property rights and all, but we also <laughs> kind of like uh, things to get better. And we kind of admire the, 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 the entrepreneur as kind of a hero, and we really believe in the right to compete. And so throughout history, there have been these entrepreneurs who have challenged laws even, and the government has come around at the federal, usually the federal, but often the state level. And they've said, well, actually, there's not a good reason to have this kind of a restriction. So the entrepreneurs should be able to compete or they've struck down monopolies. And, like, like Tesla's in Texas, for example, right? Well, Tesla's, I mean, or, or think about SpaceX even. I mean, SpaceX wanted to break into a business and the government, uh, government basically said, you know, we have this nice um, you know, collection of big companies, they're giving us what we need. And so, no, no, you can't bid on this contract. And so uh, SpaceX sues the government. He sues his customer and says, no, you have to work with me. You have to negotiate. You have to take our bid seriously. And our courts basically said, well, he's right. You know, in here in America, we believe in everybody having a chance to compete. And it's not right that, you know, the government should just, you know, the, the executive branch should just go with a, uh, you know, a favored bunch of companies. And so, no, you have to take his bid seriously. And sure enough, not only did SpaceX start winning bids, but it, it also introduced a radical improvement in uh, space technology. And if, and if we had had a different government that had said, no, 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 you can't sue your customer. What are you doing? You know, we're going to shut you down or you know, how dare you? Uh, you know, a lot of com companies would have a lot of so John, so John, you're saying our political, legal and cultural frameworks allow us to do this. So we have exactly. permission somewhere. Exactly. Now, we're not perfect. There's still some regulatory capture. You know, there are still some companies with, I think, uh, too much government government uh, favoritism. So I'm not saying we're, we're this wonderful, totally open society. But compared to other countries, I think we're way ahead. Yeah. Is uh, is Elon Musk the greatest rebel of the 21st century? Well, I'm a, I'm a historian, so it's hard for me to make comparisons. <laughs> but he's up there. 
That's for sure. Okay, okay. So let's take it to Benjamin Franklin, who, which you referenced as the original upstart. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk original, to us about Ben OG, Franklin? The OG. <laughs> uh, well, Ben Franklin is a fascinating story that uh, you know we could talk about a lot, um, but I think it really shows how America differed because when Ben Franklin was growing up under the British Empire, he started having some success and he thought, oh, I want to be one of the elites like everybody else. And so he kind of transformed himself as this, you know, he said, you know, forget my working class origins. I'm actually a landed gentry or I'm going to look like one. And he command, he commissioned this fancy uh, portrait of himself and he tried to curry favor with the uh, imperial authorities. Uh, and then along comes the revolution and, and he switches sides and he says, no, 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 I really want to. Uh, he started supporting the rebels and he started supporting the government and he uh, did all these really good things that helped us. I mean, he really is a founding father. Uh, once he understood uh, the, you know, where America was going. And so he transformed himself into the back into this kind of upstart, uh, you know, guy who was challenging the authorities. Uh, but there was a time in his career when he really wanted to be an authority. Uh, so that that revolution really helped us differentiate ourselves from England and a lot of European countries that kind of favored established authorities. I, I would I would add that he was he made his fortune uh, as a media creating a media empire, kind of the disrupt TV of uh, you know seventeen sixties Philadelphia. Nine hundred so, interviews, Ray. We're we're, it, we're called disrupt. Trying to match every one of Franklin's inventions. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Though. It's a first that I'm being compared to Ben Franklin. This is amazing. Go on, please, Howard. Keep going. <laughs> Um, you know, but, you know, one thing I'd add is, is, you know, when we were doing kind of recommendations at the end of the book, you know, the, the first draft of recommendations are government should do this, government should do that, government should do the other thing. And then we sort of said, actually, what's amazing about the United States is that it's not government isn't a single entity in a way that can do it all. It's, it's balanced power. And it's much better in general at responding to initiatives that come from the people throughout the country than it is about a, a very concerted national industrial policy. We have some of that and the government can do that and it can be very effective at doing that. But it's not as it is in many other countries where if you came up with a wish list, the government would, you know, would do it. I mean, when you look at Japan and Germany and many other countries of the world, which are governed by you know, strong powers, it's, this is a much more reactive, messier, more entrepreneurial, more scattered, uh, and more innovative kind of construct than anywhere else in the world, precisely because of the democratic institutions, separations of power, federal federalist system, the national government against the state governments, or or separate from the state governments, and a very reactive kind of uh, situation. And that's you know that and and, and the Uber story compared to the other uh, ride hailing companies kind of crystallizes it. But throughout the book, we try to show that that's what makes that the, the, the it's not a surprise that we're the most entrepreneurial. And we have the institutions of democracy. So I would ask a more social question. We go from time to time believing that centralized planned economies are going to outcrush us. We saw that during the Cold War, right? We now see this with the CCP China threat, right? That's going on. And, and we sometimes lose faith in that, uh, in the way that our 
you know, organizations and democracy and systems are set up. You know, we're, we're forcing industrial policy right now with the CHIPS Act and other things like that. How do we get back to that, to understanding that at the long run and the long term, you know, that that spirit within us and the systems within us uh, will take us there? Because we, we doubt ourselves every 30 years and we're in the middle of that right now. Well, if you, if you look at the early 1970s or the mid-1970s when Japan was cleaning our clock. Oh, they uh, were. That was that everybody thought that national policy, industrial policy was going to be the only way for us to compete. And then, you know, Reagan in particular kind of broke through a lot of that, uh, you know, national. And Thatcher. And Thatcher. And Thatcher. And, and sure enough, I think with the benefit of hindsight now, look, you know, look where Japan is over the last three decades and look where we've come over the last three decades. And I think it's it's been pretty clear that that our more responsive, uh, entrepreneurially driven uh, economy um, really, really um, shows itself. And it's it, interestingly, Reagan, I don't think, was necessarily looking at startups when he tried to deregulate. But the unintended consequence um, was that the entrepreneurial economy over the last three decades has shown the difference. And these more planned economies have had challenges keeping up. I think China is exactly the same story now, and there's a lot of fear around whether authoritarian capitalism will prevail. But I do think the lessons of, of how we competed against Japan and why we can still compete is why we're going to still be able to compete against China over time. Yeah, yeah. I, I might add, we started uh, working on this book uh, in the years before the pandemic. And China looked pretty good then. They looked like they were going to, uh, you know, be ahead in these emerging technologies. And they seemed to be so focused and disciplined. And they were pretty impressive. And we originally thought we'd have to talk a lot about China in the end of the book because they seemed so formidable. And then, you know, now they're, they've sort of like shoot, they've, they've started shooting themselves in the foot with, you know, pulling back on their big companies. The government is wary about any kind of rival power centers. And uh, I, I, you know, they're always going to be a strong economy, but I think their ability to innovate is really um, going to be tough as long as the government wants to have so much control. Yeah. Well, yeah. What, if I may, one of the things that we talk about in the book uh, is the churn rate of big companies in the United States. And that churn rate is, is accelerating. And the average lifespan of a Fortune 500 company, I think, is, is 17 years or something like that, an all-time short uh, time frame. When you look at Japan, they have the same companies that dominate the economy that have dominated the economy for over 100 years. And in fact, many in Japan think their problem is they have too many old companies who've been around too long. And you could easily see a scenario like that in China over time where we're, at the, we're in the second, third or fourth inning of this entrepreneurial wave in China. You're going to have big companies dominate the economy. But in 30 or 40 years, they still may be the ones dominating the economy and maybe having some protectionism or maybe not. But 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 I think the likelihood is in an authoritarian context, the big companies that make it today are probably going to be there for the next 30 or 40 years uh, without some organic challenge like such as we have here in the United States. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned, as I recall, 2019 in discussions in terms of the, the, the race between U.S. China, Dr. Kaifu Kai Lee's book, AI Superpower, was probably the most talked about book in, in, in my circle of 2019. But the conversations are definitely different and, and, and less. And, um, and so there has definitely been a, a shift in, 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 in you know, how we view um, 
the the competition since 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 the pandemic. Um, Ray's in Cupertino, my company's center of gravity is in San Francisco. So can you talk about like Silicon Valley and how revolutionizing the American entrepreneur uh, landscape? Sure, Howard, go ahead. Or Howard, I can do it. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm from the Boston area and there, there are books written about how Route 128 dominated technology for a long time yeah. until, <laughs> you know, the last, you know, two or three decades where uh, Silicon Valley and the much more fluid, open systems, faster cycle time type companies really became more innovative and more dominant. And uh, I think that coupled with the hippie ethos and the, and the freedom ethos that was so important uh, through the, throughout the 60s and beyond, I think really has set a, a tone around entrepreneurship, not just in terms of business practices and speed and innovation and open networks and those kinds of things, but also a political framework around how entrepreneurship really has a rebellious spirit. And as countries around the world look to Silicon Valley, I think it's not just about the business practices, but it's quite a bit around the cultural attributes as well. Has it taken a hit in the last two years? Because if you ask me where the crypto center is, I would say Miami. Where you say the where the growth of uh, innovation in the in, in the largest state, I would say Texas, uh, and, and certainly Boston, New York. And, but is it this work from anywhere where you don't have to, you know, spend 1.5 million for one bedroom apartment. Um, and that's probably an understatement, <laughs> like, you know, 500 square foot, one, one bedroom. Uh, do you think Silicon Valley will continue to maintain its dominance in terms of venture capital and investments and startups and so on and so forth? I think it's still going to get its share for sure, because the, the, most of the smartest people go there, want to go there, want to learn from there. The venture capital is there. The ecosystem is there ecosystem. in large measure still. Yeah. But you raise a great point. Texas, Florida, where else? You know, new new technologies. It, it doesn't take a lot to develop some talent pools uh, and, a, and a couple good yeah. companies. The venture capital will follow. Yeah. And there's no reason to think that, you know, you know, Austin's obviously great. Miami's great. There are so yeah. many places where these new technologies yeah. and the ecosystems can build that I don't think I don't think it's going to have the same dominance to, you know, to the same degree yeah. it has, because I could see several other areas, not to mention California has its set of issues too, sure. social, political, <laughs> inv sure. you know, environmental. So I think, sure. you know, and cost of living. So I, I absolutely think that there yeah. is now going to be room for other, other communities if they're smart and if they foster yeah. the talent that's there to, to, to find their niches and then build on those niches to make bigger ecosystems yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Steve Case has been, you know, pioneering that movement long before yeah. the pandemic, you yeah. know, as an I, example. I, I think what's important about Silicon Valley, uh, it really comes out of you, if you, so I, my background is business and economic history. And one of the problems with the field is that there's a tendency to play down entrepreneurship, I think, yep. and to play up sort of the assembling of resources. So mm -hmm. if you read some economic histories, they think, oh, Silicon Valley, well, that it really mattered that there was an existing electronics industry with big companies and that you had a lot of government money in the defense industry. And, and so Silicon Valley was almost like going to happen. And the entrepreneurial part is sort of taken for granted. And to emphasize Howard's point, it's not just that you have resources, but you have people who are willing to were creatively to be rebellious. Yeah. You know, Silicon Valley didn't happen uh, from big companies. It happened from startups and garages more. 
and from venture capitalists who are willing to work with these little startups uh, and take some risks. And that can happen anywhere. It doesn't have to happen in the Bay Area, you know, outside of San Francisco. It can happen uh, in all these other cities you're talking about. And so in a lot of com countries, they try to mimic, you know, reproduce Silicon Valley by having these resources and even venture capital. But if you don't have rebellious entrepreneurs, you're not going to get there. You know, related to this, the question that really sits in the back of the line is how much does our immigration play a role? Because, for example, you look at Japan, three generations out, it's stale now. Germany worked because the Turks came through, you have other immigration that's there. China's stuck in immigration landmine, but the countries that have flourished in the last hundred years seem to be coming from, you know, like the UK, Canada, the US, places that have been open to immigration seem to be doing, Australia seem to be doing much better uh, in, in terms of creating those types of frameworks? Or does immigration not play a role in that? And it's Immigrants just... are the ultimate rebels. I mean, come on. <laughs> Who <laughs> yep. can debate that? And there's no question. I mean, the data supports that in terms of the number of uh, big companies that get started by immigrants uh, is, is pretty astounding. And it's, yeah. it has been that way uh, from the beginning, really. Some of the first uh, you know, wealthiest Americans were actually immigrants uh, even back then. And so it's, it's definitely been part of our uh, thread work. And uh, interesting, I was at I was at a, a something uh, I'm in London uh, with a, with uh, a, someone from Germany who was just talking about exactly that, about the Tur uh, uh, Turkish immigrants having really helped uh, shake up a little bit of the German uh, ec yep, economy yep. and create some of the best companies. Yeah. Um, you know, biotech and, and others. And uh, so there's no question about it that immigration is, is absolutely a linchpin to it. Um, people have talked about that, but, but, but not, not necessarily thinking about it, how it links to our uh, political economy. And it's not just that it's a big market, but it's a, it's, it's a good environment for immigrants to come in and challenge the established order and, and go to whatever heights they can go to. And that's a very unique uh, thing around the world for sure. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the nice thing about entrepreneurs is that they're self-selected. Like, it's not that easy to change your country. It's not that easy just to <laughs> arrive. And uh, so you have to be somebody who's a bit rebellious to begin with. And, uh, and yet it's not just immigrants, because there are a bunch of other immigrant countries out there, like Canada and Australia. Uh, and as you say, you know, the, even Britain is allowing more immigrants. Uh, so, um, so, and why haven't those countries had as much entrepreneurship as we have. And so I think it's all, it all works together. The entrepreneurs help to promote the kind of federalism that Howard was talking about, the kind of distrust of government, uh, the decentralization uh, and rebelliousness. And uh, so immigrants are important, but they're not the whole picture. Sure. Uh, my final question, Howard, John, what, what, what do you hope the reader walks away with after reading Launchpad Republic. Like, what's your, what's the ultimate? What would bring you joy if someone read your book and they told you this? Uh, you know, what are you hoping that they walk away with? Sure. I mean, I, I would hope somebody would would read the book, and, and many people that we that we that I've talked to already have sort of felt this. I would walk away saying, you know, I really understand entrepreneur in the context of American history and in the context of American politics far better than I did before. I read about entrepreneurship, I understand about IPOs, I understand about unicorns, yeah. but I've never really thought, gee, that's just only part of the story. It's really uh, uh, entrepreneurship takes place in the context of American democracy, Americans' political systems, the kinds of challenges we have are gonna be solved by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And entrepreneurship in America is different 
than it is elsewhere in the world. And many countries are trying to become more entrepreneurial and they are becoming more entrepreneurial, but entrepreneurs and venture capital isn't enough. You need the broader systems. You need to understand how balanced government, decentralized finance, a role for the consumer, the, the, the whole cultural attributes all work together to make it a great place for entrepreneurship. So hopefully people will come away more informed, better citizens, better leaders, better entrepreneurs, and really have a much more uh, thoughtful context. And it's not a long book, and it's a relatively easy read, I, I have to say, but it does have a little bit of nuance to it that I hopefully readers will are picking up on and will say, yeah, I think I understand entrepreneurship in American context much better than I did before I opened page one. That's awesome. I wish I had read your book a couple of weeks ago. I went and saw Hamilton, the musical, and I saw the tension between Hamilton and Jefferson, but I didn't have the entrepreneur lessons. Yeah. Had I read your book, I would have had a much more uh, understanding of the of what I was witnessing. Go ahead, John. Uh, speaking of Hamilton, I would I, I want to second what Howard said, but also I think there's a tendency, and and Hamilton represents the good and the bad of this, uh, to think okay. In order to have a good economy, we have to sort of figure things out. We have to mastermind them. We have to have industrial policy. We have to have everybody, all our ducks lined up in a row. We have to, it has to be nicely coordinated and controlled. And, uh, and that's what China's doing. And we just need to do it in a more democratic way. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. That's I think flawed. there's a, yeah, that's flawed. There's a messiness to American business and, and economy that actually is really good. And, a lot of young people in particular look at this messiness and say, oh, capitalism is all screwed up. We need to, you know, we need to bring some order here. We need to bring some better distribution. We need to make it more equi equitable. And in fact, the messiness is the openness, you know, allows for a lot of openness that brings, that will bring a lot of the good things we really want. It just takes a little bit of patience. And we have to see, we have, we have to put aside our blinders saying, oh, only well, well figured out, societies and economies run by experts can have good results. No, no, no. You can have a really good result from what looks pretty messy. Is, you know, the, is, right. the, inno is the innovation velocity that we're accustomed to, speed and direction, cause of that messiness? So, you know, it's just, you know, we're, we produce and innovate at, at a rate where you should expect messiness. Um, hmm. I think uh, the messiness is more a result of the decentralization that we're talking about. That we, okay. that on the one hand, we have these national and global markets, but we don't have you know one one or two big companies okay. kind of deciding everything. It's all these little companies working together. I was just, um, uh, you know, your your um, you know your your previous guest talked about you know nobody knows how to make a pencil or a smartphone. <laughs> well, you know, nobody knows how to make an economy work, but somehow it does, and. It's a very messy process, and there's no there are no experts who are in charge, but it happens in this amazing way. And I think Isn't we need amazing? to think about that in terms of the role that entrepreneurs play in really moving us forward. That's we awesome. are here with amazing business acumen, historical perspective, and an understanding of what makes America works. John Landry and Howard Walk, thank you so much for being here. Authors of Launchpad Republic, it should be required reading inside all schools so we understand what is the heart and soul of what we do. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having thank us. You. Thank you very much. Right. You know, come to think of it, Ray, no one really knows how disruptive you are. We don't either. <laughs> Eldots, our producer Eldots. Eldots. Howard yeah. and Jonathan, stay it's in the green room. We'll explain to them it's later. Like you and I, we have no. <laughs> <laughs>
you know, we're gonna we're gonna cross a thousand guests by you know sometime early next year, and I have no idea how this show. We're like freaking frack, like on, back on NPR. <laughs> That's awesome! Wow. Okay. Who do we have I, next? Who do we have next? Okay, so next week is episode. Oh my God! Look at this list. Suja Chandraskaran, Senior Executive Vice President, Chief Digital and Information Officer at Common Spirit Health, a giant healthcare provider. Joanne Moretti, Chief Revenue Officer at Fictiv, former CMO at Dell, and former Chief Digital Officer at JBill, one of the largest manufacturing companies. So Joanna is extraordinary. Ooh. And uh, Christy Hunter R. Scott, an award-winning advisor, speaker, and author of a book, Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk, Embrace Uncertainty, and launch brilliant careers. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Wow. Oh, <laughs> what a lineup. My and goodness. you still have Dreamforce coming up next week, too. <laughs> For those of you watching, because I want a little bit of sympathy, I'm flying red eye back to Boston. <laughs> so I've already warned Way. Ray, you might see some guest hosts next week, but we're going to play it by ear. Uh, I don't sleep on planes, and I'm guessing I'm going to be shattered. Yeah, Ray, we're only hosting 150,000 people in San Francisco next week. <laughs> so so as one of the fortunate it. employees of Salesforce, I am going to be um, – it's my Super Bowl next week, you know? So it's uh, it's going to be amazing to one of my favorite be with you. Uh, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with some of the people that we jointly admire most, including many of the guests that have been on our show. So I hope I can't wait to give you a big hug, my friend. Not a virtual one, but a real one. And hopefully we get to break bread as well. Okay, before we go, just one minute summary of today's show, Ray. Oh, this is a lot of things that we used to teach in school uh, and in our educational system. Really the power of critical thinking and the ability to actually think about, you know, why things happen. How do we get here? And, uh, you know, I, I think in times of fear, we forget that. We forget what makes us powerful, uh, what makes us successful, what makes us, you know, equitable, what makes us inclusive. And, and it's really our ability to have personal freedoms, our ability to think on our own, and our ability to live in an amazing society that was created by our founders. Our founders were wise individuals who thought through what had happened in the past and learned from it. And, and those systems that they left us gave us these abilities. Um, you know, maybe we are an agora. That's a whole different story. Uh, and and but, but when we think about how this all works and adds up, I mean, we're, we're chaos theory. We're living chaos theory at work, right? And and somehow, somewhere, I mean, we, we exist, right? Maybe other people exist or other individuals or beings or, you know, life forms exist. I mean, we exist and we, we don't know why either. And I think that's, that's the mystery that we're all trying to solve, how systems work, how we work, right? And uh, more importantly, how we all work with each other. But I think there is an important lesson here. These are things that we no longer teach in schools. And this really worries me. And I hope we actually teach this type of critical thinking, this type of entrepreneurship, the understanding of how we got here. It means a lot to me. And I think these two guests did an amazing job talking about this. And I hope we can consider our ability to actually live in a culture of abundance instead of a culture of scarcity. That's something we have done an amazing job of in this country. So. But that's about it. If you want me to pontificate. Wow. wow, Ray. That was awesome. That, yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I'll just end with immigrants are rebels. And, and that's a good thing. <laughs> Lots of startups popping up at Martha's Vineyard right now. Just kidding. Um, okay. Uh, for those of you watching me, forget that. Forget Al, that. Please, <laughs> Al, delete that last comment. Okay. 
Uh, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Yep. And Howard, we'll see you in the green room. Bye. <laughs>